God's word again, we turn to the letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, that's page 1181, and we read that whole third chapter Uh, once more. Let's hear the word of God, Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul writing from a prison cell, as we uh, see in many places in this letter. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, And now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame, 
with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body with the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's look this evening particularly at verses 10 and 11 where Paul, in the heart of this chapter, bears his soul to us and he exposes what is on his heart. What is it? Verse 10. That I may know him, that is Jesus Christ, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And we come back once more to thinking this evening about the subject of Christian maturity. Our God is in the business of raising and growing mature Christian believers, of cultivating men and women who ultimately reach what? Well, Paul talks in Ephesians 4 verse 13 of what the great goal and target is for every one of his children, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. For us, individually and collectively, That is the goal that we are headed for. And a key measure of your spiritual health and mine is that we share in God's desire that we too want to grow up to that full maturity in Christ. And what we are doing in Philippians 3 for three weeks is looking at the Apostle Paul as our great example, model, mentor, if you like, in this matter of maturity. What have we seen? We've seen a couple of things. We've looked at Paul's destination. His eyes are set on heaven, where his citizenship is, where his, and by grace, Our true home is. A Christian is an exile here on earth. Let me just ask you, do you feel that this world is your lasting home? Is this where you really belong and want to remain forever? And if you are a true child of God and citizen of heaven, your answer will be, no, there is eternity in my heart. I am yearning and longing to be with Jesus Christ, which is better by far. That is 
your destination and mine by God's grace if we are born again children of the living God. And then we thought about Paul's direction a couple of weeks ago. What is Paul doing? He's not looking back. He's not looking over his shoulder. He's not thinking about the past. He is running. He is stretching ahead as he runs this race, as he presses forward, eyes on the goal, pushing on for that upward call of God in Christ Jesus, where he will receive that prize when he has finished the race. Now, where do we go from here? Well, I want to think this evening not about destination, not about direction, but about Paul's disposition. Now, that's the best word I can think of, apart from the alliteration of the D's continuing. The disposition of the Apostle Paul. Now, what do we mean by somebody's disposition? We mean their frame of mind, their attitude, the way that this person views his whole life and purpose. What is the disposition of the Apostle Paul? Sometimes we ask this about people, don't we? We ask the question, what makes him tick? What makes her tick? What does that mean? It means, well, what motivates them? What energizes them? What gets them going? What makes them the people that they are? What is the driving force behind their lives and their actions? Why do they do what they do? Why do they do it so well? Why do they work so hard? Why do they aim at this particular goal? We could ask this question about sportsmen, about business people, about politicians, about actors, about musicians, about almost anyone. But when we want to ask the question of the Apostle Paul, Paul, what makes you tick? What gives you drive? What is your all-consuming passion in life? Well, we can't do any better than come to these two verses, verse 10 and verse 11, where Paul says that I may know him. That I may know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul, why do you run the Christian race the way you do? Why the energy? Why the striving? Why the agonizing? Why is it that for you it's, it's no leisurely stroll round the park? Well, here again in verses 10 and 11 is the answer for Paul. And just in case you're saying, well, that was Paul, wasn't it? That was the Apostle Paul. That was this unique Christian man, this unusual man. It's not for me. It's not for the normal, ordinary Christian. Well, look ahead to verse 17 for answer to that question, where Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me. 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. And we are thinking, of course, about Christian maturity. And you go back to verse 15, where Paul says again, let those of us who are mature think this way. What way? Paul's way. The way of this apostle. So let me come to my first, and it may perhaps be my only main point tonight, because it is so, so important. Communion with Jesus Christ. Communion with Jesus Christ. Go back to verse 8. And we're looking at Paul's mind. We're looking at Paul's inner motivation. And he says in verse 8, I count everything as loss because of what? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything is loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then in verse 10, even more briefly, Paul says, that I may know him, I may know him. And this is the pulsating heart, the nerve center of Paul's whole life and being. And if we take this chapter seriously as what it is, the word of God and not merely the word of a man, then we surely see that this should be true for every single Christian. The greatest reality in my life and yours is knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. The greatest thing in all my life is knowing you. Isn't there a hymn, a chorus that goes like that? What is a Christian? You can answer that question in very many different ways. But no answer could be, I think, any better than this. A Christian is a man, woman, or child who knows Jesus Christ and understands that there is nothing, nothing more precious than knowing Jesus. Knowing you, Jesus, Knowing you, there is no greater thing. There are so many hymns, ancient and modern, aren't there, that deal with these wonderful themes. Now, what do I mean by communion with Jesus Christ? This is so, so important. When I say communion, you may well think of this table brought out a few feet forwards, with bread and wine on it, and that's communion, isn't it? We have our communion service here once a month. But communion has a deeper and even richer meaning than that. Let me try and explain it. Let's begin with the word union. What is union? Union means being one, being united. And I'll tell you this. The Word of God, and the New Testament letters in particular, would emphasize there is no greater subject 
than union with Christ. A Christian is someone who is united to Jesus Christ. That is, God deals with them as people who are in Christ. His death is their death to sin. His resurrection is their resurrection, their eternal life. Christ being accepted and adopted by the Father is their acceptance, is their adoption. Think back to earlier sermons we looked at months, years ago in Romans 5 and particularly Romans 6. And there we see that great subject of union with Christ. How are we saved? We're saved because we are one with Jesus. We are either in Adam or we are in Jesus Christ. There are only two options. If you're not a Christian, you are in Adam. You're in the old man. You are under condemnation. You are hanging from the belt of Adam who sinned and fell. But if you are a Christian, you are in Jesus Christ. You're hanging from the belt of the righteous Son of God, whom God accepts. Our salvation is all about being united to Christ. But I need to move on. We are also called to communion with Christ. And this word communion has to do with our enjoyments, our participation, our taking part, our engagement, our whole life's being spent in enjoying and working out and loving the Christ with whom we are in union. What is communion with Jesus? It is the active, living, relational, heart, mind and soul engaged life in fellowship with Jesus Christ. A Christian is called to that. That's real Christianity. That's living Christianity. Uh, This word communion is linked to the idea of fellowship. The well-known Greek word is koinonia. Having all things in common. Why we call it communion is because we sit down at a table with Jesus And he shares himself and he gives his life to us. Our communion with him is about friendship. It's to do with community. It's living, active, relational knowledge. It's not mere knowledge about Jesus. It's not mere knowledge of the Sunday school variety and no more than that. Let me add that Sunday school is a very wonderful ministry. But my point is, our knowledge of Jesus Christ must be more than, as it were, getting right the questions and the Bible trivia, as it's sometimes called. It is that we actually know him. We live in personal fellowship with him. And let me challenge you. 
No doubt there are many of us here who we can go to work and we can go to school and we can rub shoulders with people and we can answer the questions accurately. They ask us questions about God and about the Bible and about Jesus and about creation and about sin and all these things and we get the answers right. And it's good that we get the answers right and we can reason well. But it's possible to reason well and to give a clear explanation of why we believe the Christian faith without necessarily having a deep, real, living communion and fellowship with Jesus. Let me ask a question. What is marriage? You might say, hang on, that's a big change of theme, isn't it? Why are you talking about marriage? No one's getting married today, are they? I don't think they are. But marriage is a wonderful way to understand this. What is marriage? We might say marriage is a legal arrangement. There are certain legal principles that come into force when two people are married. A registrar must register the marriage. A certificate is issued that certifies the marriage. The marriage is recorded in law. It is a lawful union, union of two people. But is that all that we can say about marriage? Marriage is nothing more than a lawful union of a man and woman. There's so much more we can say, isn't there, about what marriage really should be. Marriage is to be the joyful communion, the togetherness, the relationship of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others. It's a lifelong covenant of care and love and companionship where husband and wife are knit together in their love for one another and in their growing knowledge relationally of one another. Now, why do I bring in marriage? For the very best of reasons. The Bible so frequently uses the picture of marriage to describe Jesus Christ in communion with his people. The Song of Songs, that song written by Solomon, which we find after the book of Ecclesiastes and before the book of Isaiah, what is it? Many say it is simply an ancient love poem. It's a poem about the love of a king for a particular woman. It's poetry about romance in ancient times, and there is that view. But the view of many of God's people is that it's a deeper thing even than that. It is a glorious celebration of the love of Christ for his bride, the church. Set me as a seal upon your heart. 
Love is as strong as death. Those wonderful descriptions of the everlasting, unique, exclusive love between the lover and the loved. They point us to what is the relationship, the relationship that you and I need and love and enjoy above all if we are the Lord's, that you and I are knit to Jesus Christ in that greater and permanent marriage. You think of Ephesians 5, the end of Ephesians 5, and how Paul is giving directions for how husbands and wives should live together. But of course, Paul says again and again, I'm not just giving you a a how-to guide for living as man and wife under the same roof. This isn't marriage made easy. This isn't marriage for dummies or whatever you might call it today. This is more than that. This is Christ and the church. This is the heavenly bridegroom and the heavenly bride. And as we look at the scriptures, we see that this marriage motif extends far wider and deeper than these books of scripture. It's found richly in Isaiah, for example. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5, where the Lord addresses his people. And he says to them, you shall no more be termed forsaken. And your land shall no more be called desolate, but you will be called. My delight is in her. And your land will be called married. For the Lord delights in you. And your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And that's why we have such a rich tradition of hymns on this theme. We've thought of some of them already, but we're going to sing another one very shortly. Jesus, lover of my soul, I found a friend, oh, such a friend. Oh, love divine, how sweet thou art. My Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. This is the beating heart of the Apostle Paul. And the heart of every Christian must increasingly beat in the same rhythm. Philippians 3 and verse 10, that I may know him. I suppose my last word is this. Paul, don't you already know Jesus? You've been an apostle for some years now. You've made it to Rome now at any rate. You're in prison. You've gone on at least three missionary journeys. You've been preaching Christ up and down the Roman Empire. You've written many of your letters already. You know him, don't you? Why are you saying that I may know him as if it's something that you've you've not yet attained? And it's that Paul wants to know Christ more. That's his heart's desire 
and appetite. And may every one of us, that we may grow to maturity, have a heart that says, I do know you, Lord, but oh, to know you more, to know you better, and to love you better and better, and to never cease in growing in that love in response to the love you first had for me. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this love, love that surpasses all understanding, love so amazing, so divine, Demands my soul, my life, my all. O Lord our God, may there be sparks of love in our own hearts that your spirit as that mighty rushing wind would fan into broader, brighter flame that you would kindle deeper love for you in all our hearts. Father, thank you that when we pray such a prayer, when we want to grow to maturity, we know, O Lord, that you will never frustrate that desire that we have. O Lord, we think of the fruit of your Spirit, of the love and the joy and the peace and the patience, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control, kindness, O Lord. And we read that against these there is no law, There is no restriction. There is no cap that says you can only grow this much and no further. Oh Lord, rather you would want to augment our little love for you to become an ever greater and greater love for you. So Lord, fan that into flame. Build up love in our hearts. Love and knowledge of Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. We pray all this now. In his name, amen.